picture this. You're sharing your faith with a person, and he tells you he doesn't believe in the Bible. Now, you know all Scripture is God-breathed and that the Bible is the best tool for sharing and defending your faith. You also know that even talking about the theological importance of Jesus and who he is is totally pointless without the truth of the New Testament. So you want to jump into philosophy and a defense of the truth of the New Testament. But if you hit this guy with philosophy and a full-on presuppositional argument, he's probably going to shut down, he's going to stop listening, it's going to go right over his head, and the conversation will be over. So is there a way to show the truth of who Jesus is without directly appealing to the New Testament, and without pretending to be neutral or compromising your faith and your values? This is Worldview Legacy, the show helping Christian men become the worldview leaders their families and churches need. I'm Joel Sedeckes, and I'm here to help you, the Christian layman, to build a legacy so that you and your kids and your wife will be able to confidently articulate the answers to the world's questions from the Bible. And as you do, you're going to see Jesus change lives as you share your faith. Today, you're going to learn exactly how to show who Jesus is without appealing to the New Testament. Building a worldview legacy means raising your kids to be able to speak about Jesus to anyone. And that includes people who don't accept the New Testament's historical truth. So by learning this skill yourself, you're going to then be able to pass it on to the younger generation. To help us with this, today we are joined by Jay Warner Wallace. Jay Warner Wallace is a cold case detective who used to be an atheist. Then he used the same method that he used to use for solving no-body homicides, cold cases, to investigate the truth of the New Testament the New Testament that he rejected as being true. So this is not an abstract concept for him. Jim Wallace, J. Warner Wallace, is the guy who used to reject the truth of the Bible. And now, Jim is the author of the new book, Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. And he's going to join us to show us exactly how we can present the truth about the identity of Jesus, who he is, without direct evidence from the New Testament. I know you've met people who reject the New Testament. I'm sure of it. And I'm sure that at the time you wanted to give a good answer that shows exactly who Jesus is and why he matters. But you also didn't want to do it in a way that made it seem like you yourself rejected God's word or were somehow neutral towards Jesus. So how do you show who Jesus is when the person won't even listen to arguments from the New Testament? I myself have wrestled with this. And I typically do go into a standard presuppositional approach. But sometimes the person that I'm speaking with just doesn't understand what I mean when I say that, you know, the very question that they're asking presupposes God and the truth of the Bible. And since he rejects the New Testament, he's just closed off to my reasoning from Scripture. He just doesn't get it when I explain this is inconsistent. We're dealing with real people here. And, you know, at that point, often I just want to give up. I want to get straight to the gospel and I don't see a way to get there. And so I want to give up. But giving up is not the right option. What I really need and what you need, what we need, is a different approach. If you can relate to any of this in any way, even if you're skeptical about what I'm talking about right now, this episode is for you. In this episode, Jay Warner Wallace is going to explain the story of how he came to write his new book, Person of Interest, the difference between direct and indirect evidence, and why indirect evidence is so powerful. He's going to talk about why it was better for Jesus to come in the first century than today in the internet age, 
He'll talk about the impact that Jesus had on science, the impact Jesus had on architecture and art, and why if you received a good K-12 through Western-style education and went to college, you should thank Jesus. He'll also talk about how Jesus inspired other religions to actually modify their teachings, even religions that came before Christianity, and how you can take the next best step in using all this knowledge of history and apologetics to share your faith and to educate and disciple the younger generation. Hint, it's all about priorities. Hey, I want to tell you also about a really cool brand new way that you can support this ministry and get a ton of great resources to help you on your journey towards worldview leadership. There's a very special opportunity that we are beta testing right now. It's happening this week, and I want to make sure that you know about it. So if you listen to the end, I'll tell you about it then. I'm Jay Warner Wallace. I get the chance to investigate cold case murders and write about the case for Jesus and try to connect those two things in such a way that they're powerful for people who are listening. I want to jump right into the good stuff. So to begin with, Jim, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Serious question now. Okay. Was writing this book just an excuse to use your art training? It feels like it sometimes kind of gratuitously when you open the book and there's so many illustrations. I know it probably feels that way. Look, a lot of it for me, writing books is, um, I think of every book as a piece of art. I mean, like not just the words being artistic, but I mean that the book and how it presents and I see it as a piece of art. That's just my art background. That stuff uh, is important to me, and I'm picky about it. You know, even when I, I knew this was going to include a, a murder mystery in the book. Yeah. So I asked him to do a cover that looks more like a detective fiction crime novel yeah. than There's an apologetics book. on it and everything. Right. So how did Jim come to write his new book, Person of Interest? And how does the story that he tells in this book connect with his other books, Cold Case Christianity and God's Crime Scene? So what it is, is is cold case, person of interest, and God's crime scene all happened for me at the exact same year. That mm. year was the year that I said, you know what, I'm going to look at this more seriously. And as I read through the Gospels, I had a couple of questions that were nagging like uh, deal killers. You know, number one, I'm reading through the Gospels. I'm assessing the Gospels as eyewitness accounts. I talk about that in cold case. And I'm just uh, trying to make, trying to check all those boxes. There's 13 questions we ask of eyewitnesses. I'm asking these questions of the gospel authors. That's all in that book. At the same time, though, I get to that point where I'm like, yeah, look, this, this, I could, I could feel so much better about the New Testament if there was nothing miraculous in it. Just nothing. That was the first question I have. I, I was a committed super um, a philosophical naturalist, right? So mm-hmm. and I think this is true as a thought experiment. If you were to remove all the miracles from the New, New Testament uh, story, all, you know, everything he does, it's miraculous, virgin birth, resurrection, take all that stuff out and leave everything else in. I guarantee there wouldn't be an enti- a historian in the history of, histor- of historians who would say this is not the most well-attested ancient on uh, in history. Right. They would never have doubted anything about the historicity of Jesus, given the manuscript evidence, except that it records a bunch of miracles. And that's why everyone says it's this mythology. This is genre difference, and they just, it's because they have a presuppositional bias, like I did, mm-hmm. against the supernatural. So the first thing this caused me to do was to challenge my own presuppositions about natural. Can everything in the universe be explained with space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry? Mm. And that's what God's crime scene kind of charts through that because it wasn't, okay. it was messy for me. It was like, okay, I don't, but, but look, I, I was a big bang cosmology. Um, uh, that's what, that was the position I took that everything in the universe came into existence from nothing um, at a point in the distant past. 
Mm. And that Big Bang was something that would require something outside, though, of space, time, and matter to be the cause of that thing, of that uh, expansion. And so that's why I had to really kind of reassess that. At the same time, the second question for me was, okay, but if this is God coming into the his created order, do you really mean to tell me that all we have in terms of impact is the Gospels? <laughs> You know, and a few New Testament authors that spin off from the gospel. Like, wouldn't you expect there to be this huge tidal wave of of impact that right. if he's God, he would have? And so how I try to posit it in, in person of interest, I'm saying, hey, how do you um, investigate a crime in which you've got no crime scene? Uh, nobody uh, murders are like this. Right. You know, someone kills his wife, gets rid, buries the body, and then he claims she ran off. And we take it, you know, a week later, he calls and says she never came home. It's been a week, right? And so we go out and take a report. Another week, it gets assigned to a detective. Now we're two weeks behind this thing. No one's taking pictures of anything. They all think it's a missing, and it goes cold. And then sure enough, 30 years later, I got to reopen it. I don't have a single picture or piece of evidence brooked into property. Nothing, because no one worked it as a murder. Now, how do you make a crime? How do you uh, 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 convict somebody of something they did if you don't have any evidence from the crime scene? Well, that's what we do is we typically say, hey, the crime scene is an explosive day. All bombs are preceded by fuses, which burn. The tensions rise. He's preparing mm -hmm. to do something he shouldn't do. And then after the bomb explodes, you've got shrapnel and debris all over the uh, blast radius. And this is often the kinds of things that happen after you kill somebody. Some unintended, unexpected things do happen that give you away. Well, we're going to make the case from just the fuse and the fallout. That fuse and fallout model, I have absolutely done this in front of juries. I've had a number of these cases. I've done these on Dateline cases. So I know how to do these cases. And I thought, well, if I was to look at Jesus, and I was unwilling to, even if there was nothing credible about the New Testament, or I wasn't willing to read it, is there any evidence um, from history, the fuse and fallout leading up to the first century and following the first century that would really give me enough data or at least would confirm the data that I'm finding in the New Testament? So this book, Person of Interest, is all about making a case for Jesus without the New Testament. But why do that? Why try to make a case for Jesus without the Gospels? So again, there's nothing you can know about Jesus without referencing the New Testament. That is our source. That's all of it. And I've written a book about that. That's called Gaze Christianity. But it seems to me that if Jesus is who he said he was, we should not only have see huge impact on every important uh, aspect of culture, but we should also be able to reconstruct, his fingerprints are there. We should be able to reconstruct the story of Jesus from that impact. So those two things were the goal of this, really my early investigation, and it was the goal of this book. Now, I can tell you when I did this 24 years ago, it was uh, pretty messy. And you know, I wasn't getting ready to write a book, so I kept some notes. I got rid of a lot of notes. I kept some of the books, got rid of some of the books. Um, so I had to really kind of go back. And also, you know, when you're just doing this for your own personal knowledge, you're not necessarily doing it in such a way that I have an entire set of endnotes. Okay. You're, you're, you know, you're kind of sticking stuff and folding stuff over, sticking it in a book. Back then I was like in the book days. I didn't have, you didn't even have a computer or internet access back then. Mm. So, so a lot of this was just being done with books. And so now we kind of went back, uh, you know, tightened all that up, got all the end notes together. And, uh, this is what person of interest is. Those end notes too in this book. I mean, it's uh, you, you call it. Um, let's see, case case notes. Case right? notes. Yeah, but look, you're probably thinking, oh, Joel, of the ones that are in the back of the book, and there's 50 yeah. pages of case notes in the back of the book. But mm -hmm. there's another 
uh, is it 270 pages of case notes online in the PDF file? So uh, there's person, well more. For there, person of interest? Yeah, for person of interest. There's way more words in the end notes than there are in the actual book. Wow. So I, I wanted to be able, so if I said to you, for example, there's 490 scientists or whatever it was, 950, I forget now what how many it was. Um, if I told you there were that many, I didn't want to stick them in the book because it was like, how many pages would that take? So I put them in the yeah. end notes. So if you want to know who those scientists are historically, who are Christ followers and what discipline they worked in and what denomination of Christianity they belonged to and where in the world they lived and what they are actually, you know, fathers of, if they're a father of or award winners of, all of that stuff's in the end notes. So I think that that could have been, you know, I could have done eBooks, I guess, on some of that stuff because there's so much stuff in there. But but at the same time, the great thing about end notes is you don't have to be um, you're, uh, typing out entire paragraphs. You can just kind of say, refer to this, you know, yeah, yeah. and then just point to it. So that's the good thing about it. Next, I asked Jim, how did it feel when you finally finished this book, Person of Interest? I mean, like the amount you, of research like, that went into yeah, it. like I just stopped hammering my thumb. <laughs> That's kind of what it felt. <laughs> so what happened was I had no idea how much work this would be to put to get back together because I'm thinking, well, I did it already once. This sure. should be fast, right? I just got to yeah. assemble that stuff. Well, then it started a rabbit trail too because there's a lot of little nooks and crannies. You're like, yeah, I'd like to see what's over there too. So, so you start doing that. I had two research assistants and it was the COVID year. Mm. So I was uh, I asked Zonervan to give me two years to build the stage presentations for this material. And I knew that all of the research was going to occur while I was building the media. So I've got, there's, there's some illustrations in here where there, uh, my PowerPoint's got, you know, say 600 scientists in one screen, uh, all imaged as little busts, like they're in a, uh, like they're in a hall of fame. Hmm. And as I was building those, you know, going out and finding the images of each scientist, cutting them into the bust form, putting them on the little bust pedestals, uh, render them as a PNG with a clear background so I could put it in a PowerPoint presentation. Uh, my wife was like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, this doesn't even, like, what is this? I was like, just right. trust me. Now, the whole thing is going to click through in five seconds. It might take me a week to build it hmm. and for like a five second sequence. But when you see it, when you see how many people we're talking about, because it's one thing to say that Christ followers have innovated far more scientific disciplines at tenfold more than all other groups combined. I could say that, but when you see them on the screen, it's powerful. Yeah. And often cumulative cases are this way for juries where I could make a, like I say, let me, let me remind you, no, no, let me just show it to you. Hmm. in its most robust form. And you'll go, yeah, this is ridiculous. This is overwhelming. This is why cumulative case diagrams when you're making a case in front of a jury are so powerful because you might forget some of this stuff if you don't see it. Then you go, yeah, the, this is this is a no-brainer. So, yeah. so that's um, why we tried to do it that way. Something that really piqued my interest as I was preparing for this interview was the distinction that Jim makes between direct evidence and indirect evidence. So I wanted to pick his brain on that a little bit. I've been looking at your website a lot lately, so I'm not sure if I got this from your website or from the book, but you do make the distinction between direct evidence, which is eyewitness testimony, mm -hmm. and indirect evidence, which, as you say, yep. is everything else. Yeah, but, no, um, it's just, that's just hit the, call, the categories in, in courtrooms. You know, we, we'll always say you have yeah. no hard evidence for Christianity. Well, hard evidence is not a category. You only have two categories of evidence of any kind, and that's direct and indirect. Mm. And direct is just eyewitnesses. Everything else is indirect, and here's the nasty truth, is that indirect evidence is also known as circumstantial. 
Mm. So circumstantial evidence um, is the kind of evidence most people think is lame. But it turns out DNA is circumstantial, indirect evidence. It's not eyewitness right? testimony. Fingerprints, well, that's circumstantial. All the stuff that you thought, well, we got him now. We got his DNA at the scene. Well, that's mm. indirect evidence. Now, I, I agree you have him now because indirect evidence is incredibly powerful. So all the stuff we're talking about in Christianity is going to be either direct or indirect. It's going to be the eyewitness statements recorded and perhaps, for example, corroborative evidence from archaeology, corroborative evidence from interior relationships within the text. That's mm. indirect evidence. And okay. so it's both direct and indirect that is used. And, this, and Jesus talks about this. He says, you've got the testimony of John and the Father, <laughs> direct, mm. and you've got the miracles, indirect, huh. to make this case. He's using both. So the miracles are considered... Yeah, those are indirect evidence. Yeah. But the but the eyewitness testimony about the miracles from John Well, the, the eyewitness testimony for example of the resurrection. Well, that's the piece of direct evidence. What did you okay. see? And this is what Paul does. Is Paul constantly talks about it this way. Uh, even I am an eyewitness as, as yeah. to one untimely born one he appeared to born. me also. Yeah. Why is he even bothering to say that? Because he's trying to establish himself with the same authority of the other apostles. Remember, when Judas leaves the group, he's replaced by Matthias on the basis of what? His eyewitness status. They were looking mm. for somebody who had seen the Christ from the baptism to the resurrection. They needed an eyewitness. Well, Matthias is actually one of those guys who had. So he was able to step into the role of Judas. And that's because direct evidence is the way in which the gospel was communicated in the first century. By the way, you'll never hear them say, testimony is not, how did God change my life? Testimony is, what did you see in the resurrection? Right. right. It's, it's got a very kind of court-like um, legal definition of testimony. We've just distorted it, and we make our testimony as, well, let me tell you, I was a drunk before I met Jesus, and then mm -hmm. that's all good, but it's just part of a larger case. We are called to be able to testify to the resurrection. That's it. That's the first calling of all of the disciples. And I, th I really think that those 40 days that Jesus spent with the disciples was him connecting the resurrection to the Old Testament scripture. Because right away, Peter sure. at, at Pentecost is connecting his observation of the resurrection to a very robust, I mean, how does this fisherman now mm. sound this? Because he's had 40 days for Jesus to teach him. Yeah, and that's what he does in Luke 24, right? He shows him yeah. all, the, all the things in the Old Testament that that's right. connect with him. That's what yeah. Apollos does, Paul does it when they go into the synagogue. Absolutely. So, Here's so what the Old Testament predicted, and we saw it with our own eyes, even on Mars Hill. He says, you people are super religious. You got a tomb mm -hmm. and a monument for everything, but we're here to tell you what we saw. We actually wow. saw Jesus rise from the grave. And that's 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 the difference, is that 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 even talk about this this book is that the, the mythologies that the, the culture were were worshiping, those were myths written from human poets imagining collectively the uh, and, and embracing and expressing the common expectations of ancient people groups through the minds of poets and writers. Jesus is not the myth from the minds of poets and writers. He's the myth from the mind of God. Myth not meaning fictional story. Yeah. Myth meaning story about God. And that's the difference is that uh, C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says that the difference is those were from poets. This is from God established in what we call real things. Yeah. This actually happened. It has the that great myth. advantage. You know, so, so that's the true myth. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. All right, it's time to get down to brass tacks. How do we actually make the case for who Jesus is without appealing to the New Testament and the Gospels?
So I'm just going to give you the 30,000 view of person of interest, and then we'll just talk nail, drill down into a couple of these areas. So the idea cool. here is there's a fuse, cultural, prophetic, and uh, spiritual fuse that's burning mm -hmm. up to the first century. In the book, Jim describes the coming of Jesus as though it's like a bomb going off or a murder. And he says that every major event like that is going to have a fuse or multiple fuses leading to it and then fallout. So first up, he's going to talk about the spiritual fuse. The spiritual fuse is just the abundance of mythologies worshipped by ancient people groups, all sharing common expectations of deity, at least broadly, not specifically, but broadly. And I just identified those 15 characteristics that, uh, that unite everything from Greece to Egypt to Persia to all these mythologies. And you'll see that most myths, you know, they are going to appear miraculously. They can do godlike miraculous things. They often can defeat death. They often are said to be royal in some way or kingly or imperial. They, you know, there's 15 of these. Very mm -hmm. broad. Well, you'll find that almost all of them share, you know, somewhere between six and 10 of these attributes. When you get to the first century, you've got Jesus of Nazareth, though, who shares all, he's the only historical figure who has all 15 expectations of the ancients. Right. There is nobody else like Jesus. And, and there is no direct borrowing because these are just broad expectations, broad similarities. So like, Mithras is often offered as, you know, oh, he's copied from Mithras, Jesus. But to say yeah. that Mithras was born of a virgin in a cave, which is I often hear, is to misstate what actually happens. Mithras emerges from the side of a mountain, leaving a hole in the mountain. Mm -hmm. So unless you're going to call the mountain, that's a very different story than Jesus. But broadly yeah. speaking, they both appear in the world in a supernatural, unexpected way. So you could say they are similar. Now, here's why that's important. If you wanted to arrive in history at the one time when the most people groups are still actively worshiping the mythologies that share these common expectations so that you can meet and surpass these expectations, well, you've got a window in which you can occur. It's about, I think, a 500-year window in which you need to appear. So that's the spiritual fuse. What about the cultural fuse? And if you overlap on that, the culture of, of the Roman Empire, and I give it in the book a number of, of reasons why that's important, but one of the most is there's a 200-year uh, period of, 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 of peace in yeah. the Roman Empire called the Pax Romana, in which buildings, and I mean, uh, roads, for example, tunnels and bridges, the very roads that Paul is going to use. As a matter of fact, if you read Revelation, the, four, the seven churches mentioned by John, you'll see that several of them are only in existence because the roads were available not even a hundred years prior to the mm. birth of Jesus, but they were available because of the Pax Romana infrastructure that was being built by the Romans. So now you've got to overlap that. Your, your window comes down from about 500 years into about 200 years. And then if you overlap the prophetic, I have a whole chapter on prophecy, mm -hmm. uh, you'll see that there's a prediction from Daniel. And when you overlap that, well, now suddenly your window is about 100 years wide. And it's from about 29 BC to about 70 AD. Yeah. That 100-year period right in the middle, the middle third is occupied by Jesus of Nazareth. So when Paul says in Galatians 4 that God would come in the form of Jesus in the fullness of time, this is what he's talking about. The fuse has burned and lit an opportunity. I call a red zone. We do this in criminal cases also. You'll see in the book I talk about using it in the, in the criminal case. 
that's that demonstrates when someone dies a uh, murder occurs often tells you who your suspect is not just where it occurs or how oh, so. it occurs well because what happens is that each of the preconditions each of us provides certain sets of preconditions so for example if uh, i want to kill you and I, I use this illustration in the book but i want to dissolve the body after i mm. kill you so no one can find it well i'm going to need a barrel to dissolve it in and i'm going to need the acid so i can't do anything until i get the barrel and then later when i get the acid so now i have timeline markers i cannot work in front of because I don't have what's necessary to finish the job. And then if I'm trying to get rid of you before you do something, well, that's a deadline I've got to work in front of. So now between the, the preconditions I need and the deadline, I've got a red zone of opportunity. If you disappear in that red zone, so I can go to a jury and say, well, yeah, you know why she died on that date? Well, look when he bought the barrel. Look when he bought the acid. Look when he had, he had to work ahead of this deadline. And that's when she disappears. Well, that's his precondition and his deadline. That's why it's his red zone. And that's why he's our suspect. Mm. That's the kind of thing we're doing here, too. There's a red zone that's related to prophecy, related to culture, and related to spirituality, which means there's going to be an opportunity right there in what we just happen to call the first century for something big to happen. So there were these fuses that led up to the arrival of Jesus and that made the moment that Jesus came the perfect moment for God to come down as a man and to enter history. But there was also fallout from Jesus' coming, and that can be seen all over the world and throughout history down to the present day. That's what we turned our attention to next. Then we're in the fallout section, and I look at things like art, literature, music, education, science, and world religions. And if you look at those areas of, of cultural impact, you'll see that there's no one who has an impact on those areas of literature, art, music, education, science, and world religions like Jesus of Nazareth. Nobody. I really want to emphasize this because that is so often... The time when Jesus came is so often used as a detriment to Christianity. Oh, he came in the Bronze Age. He came before the yeah. printing press. He came before the internet. This is something I really wanted to talk with Jim about because I get this objection all the time. If God wanted to get everyone's attention so that everyone would know he had entered history, why did he come during the ancient past? Why didn't he come during the internet age when we have so much more access to information? I really want to emphasize this because... That is so often, the time when Jesus came is so often used as a detriment to Christianity. Oh, he came in the Bronze Age. He came before the yeah. printing press. He came before the internet. If God wanted to impact the world, he should have come in the age of the internet. And what you're saying is, no, the situation was perfectly conditioned. It was the exact moment in history. And when you're talking about science, the internet, the printing press, these things all happened as a result of the fact that Jesus came during that ancient period. Is that right? Well, yeah, here's, a, here's the thing. Let's, let's just say for sake of art, I get this a lot, you know, why, why would it would be far better for Jesus to come in a period of a much greater ability to communicate. Yeah. Um, so that's just not true. And so let's just forget about the fuse and fallout for a second. Let's just talk about the issue of would it have been better for Jesus to come in the first century or in the 21st century? Mm -hmm. uh, we are right now in the middle of a growing uh, global, uh, uh, well, it's regional right now, a, a war conflict between Ukraine and Russia. This is happening. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much you've been watching the news um, related to how well the Ukrainians are, are standing up against Russian forces. Most of it is false news. Most of it are stories that aren't true. And they are, I've seen them retweeted, reposted, 
uh, all over the place. Now they're starting to kind of get de- de- uh, debunked. And so how, how valiant they were over here, well, that didn't actually occur. Uh, what he said over the, he didn't actually say that. Um, this, this episode we have on video, well, that's actually from two months earlier. I mean, we're seeing a lot of that right now. Well, that's not unusual. As a matter of fact, I think we all have a growing distrust of anything we see. Yeah. And we are polarized along sources. And usually they're politically polarized. So you're thinking, well, who said that? Before I even believe it. Oh, well, he said it. Or she said right. it. It can't be true because <laughs> right. Right. you don't have to agree with their political position or their cultural position or whatever. We are not. It's not as though you could come right now and make a claim that wouldn't just continue to polarize people and entrench them. Even a true claim. You'll, yeah. Half the people will say, oh, this is a great truth to know. The I've other half will say. people switch sides because, yeah, they'll because get entrenched of who's supporting say, the other I side. could never accept that because you accept. By the way, that's even happening within Christendom right now, right? Yeah, I is. think Gen Z and millennials often will say, well, look, if I have to vote for that candidate, I can't be a Christian. Because they don't disconnect the Christian worldview and the claims of Christianity from some political party. So I think we're going to have to really recognize that we are more polar. Not only that, the technology is such that if I was to what record somehow visually on a video, a miracle, would you, I I mean, (laughs) seriously, you, you you don't believe anything you see. You've been watching Marvel. Exactly. You've been watching Marvel. I've been watching the matrix series. The fourth movie came out this year. None of this stuff is, I mean, if you can convince anything of anyone of anything now visually, and here's the one last thing. So I discovered this right in the book. I'm trying to look for evidence of Jesus's impact in history and evidence I can use to reconstruct the story of Jesus, because that's what's so remarkable. It's not just that he has more influence than any other historical figure in the history of historical figures. It's that you can reconstruct his story because his fingerprints are so obvious. Hmm. So I looked at this and I said, okay, so let's say we do this video, you and I, and it goes viral, which I, you know, I'd be surprised if my, my videos go viral, but let's just say it Same. does. Yeah. Okay. So, so we have this viral video and it's got, oh, a hundred thousand views or 500,000 views. It does not mean that anyone is downloading the video. They're just watching it from a server. Mm-hmm. They're not downloading it into a hundred thousand geographic locations. And because they're not downloading it, and even if they were, the technology would change too quickly. It doesn't have the kind. So, for example, the same conversation written on a manuscript, printed 100,000 times, and then distributed across the globe, that's very hard to erase because Mm -hmm. it occupies 100,000 geographic locations. Our digital communication does not do that. Your Twitter feed does not occupy 100,000 geographic locations. It's all sitting there on the server. That's right. That means that 100 years from now, it's very much easy to get lost. It's easy to not exist anymore. The great thing about uh, first century manuscripts and manuscripts throughout those 2000 years is that they are, there are millions and billions of these manuscripts, not just um, uh, the manuscripts of of, uh, New Testament documents. I'm talking about all those times that somebody in art, music, literature, education, science, or world religions said something about Jesus. Well, that's all printed and it's occupying so much space that it'd be impossible, and I say that, I, don't, I hardly ever use the word impossible. I usually, it certainly wouldn't be reasonable to try to destroy the physical um, material on which Jesus is mentioned. Whereas That's flipping this the entire of, argument on its head. Well, That's and flipping then, the whole common understanding right upside down. Well, right. this is the, but do, do you got, we all see this, right? Like I'm, makes I'm, sense. I'm, I'm struggling as an author to say, well, how much do I do on digital media Mm. that is either changing really quick. Like, for example, when I first did audiobooks, we were delivering them on CDs. 
Hmm. Does anyone have a CD player anymore? Wait, I was going to say, what are those? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so and now, and now that we do video and we still create DVD packages because a lot of churches mm -hmm. are still using DVD players. Mm -hmm. I have a DVD player. You know why? Because I have uh, uh, ballroom dancing videos from the 1990s that my wife and I still reference, right? No way. When we're dancing, learning how to dance during different dances. That's yeah, this awesome. is how old I am. I do some ballroom dancing with my That's wife. That's fantastic. But, yeah. but here's the thing about it. I've often thought, well, why don't we just flip on YouTube? There's probably better stuff on YouTube now. So sure. the, the, the media changes so much and so quickly that I just don't know. And but, but if you've got a piece of scrap of papyrus with something scribbled on it, there's a good chance you're going to recover that data, hmm. even if the technology has changed a thousand times since then. Right, right, right. So when when the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4.4 4 says mm -hmm. that Jesus came in the fullness of time, he meant it. Everything was aligned, even the modes of communication. Right. Now, I don't know. I, clearly, he is not saying, hey, there's a red zone. He's, being, he's not being that specific, right? Sure, but I think there sure. is definitely leverage in that verse to kind of mm. wonder what exactly. It's not just that, that, that the time was... It is, there's definitely a, an aspect of which he is saying the time was right, the fullness yeah. of time. And yeah. the, so the question I think is fair to ask, well, why was the time right? And these these fuses that burn up to the first century will help answer that question. So now let's change gears a little bit and talk about the relationship between Christianity and science. So how does it make you feel when someone says that science is opposed to Christian faith? Oh, it, well, it, it, I understand it. I'll tell you why. I think it, there's there are some cultural misperceptions. I talk about one of them in the book, The Whole Story of Galileo. Um, I mean, I think you see that there are historic moments when people, and I think what you also see is that people always, it's not as all of us have time or energy or even the desire to, to run everything through the context of history. So how did the coming of Jesus actually impact the development of science? Let's talk about that. Well, because he has a catalyst, his worldview is a catalyst for the explosive growth of the sciences. That's why the explosive growth of the sciences occurs after the appearance of Jesus and not before it. Mm -hmm. There's no one doing sciences until Jesus arrives. Now, that could be a coincidence, or it could be that he somehow inaugurates a worldview. What I thought was interesting in studying the history of science was I, I charted, I just looked through history and said, well, how many people are identified as either natural philosophers or as scientists historically? You'll get a list from every country, every worldview. Well, this is what I have research assistants for. Let's, let's get the whole comprehensive list. And so we put yeah. the whole comprehensive list together. Let's see how many of these folks are Christians and how many aren't. And so we had a list, and a lot of people are not Christians, but they are completely dwarfed in number by those who are, leading right up into the last generation. And when you see how many Christ followers then are engaged in the scientific revolution, and you see how many Christ followers are fathers of scientific disciplines, the first initiator of the discipline, you'll realize there's a connection here. As a matter of fact, the entire story of Jesus can be more robustly reconstructed from the work of the science fathers in their personal journals and writings than it can be from the work in personal journals of the church fathers in the first 300 years. That's yeah, amazing. and I, I just barely scratched the surface of the science. Well, number one, there's a lot more of them. Uh, and number two, uh, they are closer in history, so we have a lot more of their work. Right. Uh, but they were devout Christ followers who wrote. Some of them were theologians as well, and they wrote about theology. So there's a lot of data you can recover. You'd right. have to destroy all of the personal writings of the history of science in order to yeah. erase Jesus. 
so I was curious about this as I was reading your book. Someone's going to say, yeah, of course, all these scientists were Christians. Everyone was a Christian back then. It was like, you know, if you're from England, you're English. You're also a Christian. Yeah. So that's not really, you know, an argument. What do you say to that? Well, that's because it's not true. That statement is not true. So it, it back. Okay. So the scientific revolution occurs in the 16th and 17th centuries, and it occurs mm -hmm. in a region of the world known as Europe under a worldview known as Christendom. But it'd be false to assume that the most people on planet Earth were in Europe. They're, they weren't. That's, yeah. Why doesn't this occur in China under a different worldview? Why doesn't it occur in Persia or Egypt under a different worldview? Why is it exploding in this part of the world when there are far more people who aren't in Europe than are in Europe? Right. But why is it exploding there? Well, there's seven reasons. But the point is, it's exploding under Christendom because Jesus unites a way of looking at nature, a way of looking at God, and a catalyst, um, a drive for education that becomes the foundation of the modern university. And mm. that perfect set of circumstances aligns and allows for. Then I asked Jim about the relationship between other religions to science, like Islam. I noticed in between like the 7th and 13th century, there was a dominant strain of science and mathematics led by Muslims. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, and and if you talk to like you know a friend of mine is David Wood who's got a channel on YouTube that talks a lot mm -hmm. about Islam. He'll get people who will write or call or or message in you know on the on the side of the video as you're as you're talking about about how no it's it's a Muslim who's the founder of this or a Muslim who's the father of that. Well, yeah, I've heard that the scientific process. Yeah. Right, right, sure, exactly, and and but these are all pre-modern disciplines they usually have are involved in because they drop off the map at the end of the 13th century or so. Right. Right. And the question then becomes, well, why? Now, there's a book called The Closing of the Muslim Mind, but I think it's a cautionary tale for us as Christians because it seems to me, and I could be wrong about this, and people are still kind of examining it, but if, if, if you believe that any conflict that you discover between the special revelation that you possess and the natural revelation that you observe, if you believe that, that you, are, you, you have to reinterpret everything you see naturally to... You can never reinterpret anything you see in special revelation. Now, we've done this before. We don't believe that the earth is flat, although mm -hmm. I suppose you could make a case from the strict literal reading or that, the, for example, we don't believe that we're in a, a geocentric solar system, although the Bible says the sun rises and mm -hmm. sets. I mean, we're, we're, we clearly go back and when we know what we recognize that that's just a human perception. We still use that expression, by the way, even though we right. know it's not moving around us. Okay. So, so I think we can we can we can still use those expressions. But we have stopped and said, hey. Uh, we understand now what is meant by sunrise and sunset mm -hmm. based on what we have learned in natural revelation. And the skies proclaim, right? The heavens declare the, the, the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his Psalm hands. 19. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we, we, we know that these two things are always going to be in agreement. And if we see they don't appear to be in agreement, either we've misunderstood something in natural revelation or we've misunderstood something in special revelation. But if that sounds to you like that's a heresy, like I could never reinterpret that's by the way, that has been historically done for generations and you're doing it too. If you don't believe the sun actually rises. Right. Okay. Well then I think we have to be able to do that. And Islam basically said, no, you can never do that. So since you're never, ever going to reinterpret the strictest reading of Scripture, then there's no point in doing this over here. Because anything you discover that doesn't match over here, we're going to reject that natural revelation. Have you heard and that? And that shut was, down the, the future of, of science for the, for the Muslim faith. 
So that's why they dropped off the. Well, the face this of the map, is, look, there's right. there's there's a much better. <laughs> I'm I'm giving you the the thumbnail version of what I sure. kind of think is at play, but powerful okay. imams who are uh, uh, forceful and 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 influential within mm-hmm. Islam, I think, had a lot to do with it. In that book, closing the Muslim mind, the closing of the Muslim mind, I think it begins to kind of scratch the surface. I I refer to it in our book, but regardless yeah. of why it happened, we know this: it did happen, right. and it didn't need to. Look, folks, we we are are we have led in the sciences, but it does appear to me right now. And I just did an interview with James Tour, who's a nano uh, technologist in at Rice University in, in near cool. Houston, um, and he'll say the same thing. And he's frustrated by the fact that if we, even if we are Christians in the scientific world, we have a tendency to keep it quiet. We, we have a tendency not to want to because so much related to our tenure, related to our income related to our acceptability within a structure where we found our identity as professors is now connected to whether or not you are willing to claim your Christian faith or not publicly. Mm. And he's, he makes a big case about this and I think he's, he's probably right. And so we have to make a decision about whether we are going to continue to lead in the sciences. And by the way, even now the more Nobel prize winners in the sciences are Christians than all other groups combined. It's like, we it's like make nine times as many. Yeah. Do we want to continue to do this or not? That's the question. Now, what about the fallout that Jesus produced in the areas of art and architecture? This is something that you are uh, obviously very passionate about, uh, very interested in. Um, for me, me as well, like, you know, growing up in the Midwest, uh, mid-sized suburb of Chicago, I mean, our oldest architecture dated back to like the 1950s or something like yeah, that. Like, right, right, you right, know, right, right. But then I go to college in Pennsylvania, Grove City College, and I they have this required Western Civ class. And that was when I learned about flying buttresses and Gothic architecture right, and right. domes and, and, you know, pointed domes and spires and what these things all mean. And, man, I got to tell you, and Grove City College is a beautiful campus as well. It's just gorgeous. Um, but when, so when you're talking about Western civilization and the art and the architecture, yeah, that struck a chord with me big time. I love that stuff. I love photography. And you make the case in the book that all of this stuff ultimately owes its origin. All this beauty in architecture and art owes its origin to Jesus. Basically, you're saying, if you enjoy this architecture, thank Jesus. Can you flesh that out? Well, so, so much, well, especially when you're talking about flying buttresses and that kind of thing. So, so I I would say that, that the history of art is dominated by, uh, at least inspirationally by Jesus of Nazareth. There's no other person in the history of persons who has so inspired artists in every genre, in every nation. So more painting, sculpture, etching, drawings have been inspired by Jesus of Nazareth. So much so that if you were to look at the uh, historic genres, of art and there's a bunch right they occur in history and then you know you start off in antiquity and you move through different kinds and get to impressionist work and expressionist work and dadaism and popism every ism you can think of um uh, historically in the arts and just google the top three masters in that ism that's pretty easy to do and you'll see that if you go to their catalogs and look at their artwork they have all done something involving Jesus. I don't care if it's Picasso or Andy Warhol or you name it. They've written something or drawn something rather uh, about Jesus of Nazareth, inspired by sometimes in fear, sometimes not uh, um, uh, in a kind way, but always something. There's something about the Jesus story. And I've also got an A to Z list of countries in which dominant um, art has come out inspired by Jesus of Nazareth. And one of the reasons... 
Well, I doesn't know. I doesn't prove anything at all. I mean, I don't think that's the issue. But but, but I would say this: um, Can you think? This is how I look at it. When you say that, does that, none of this proves anything. I don't use the word "prove" ever in front of a jury. Hmm. I don't use it in any of my books. And the reason why I don't is because there's a difference between evidence and proof. So so I would say there's certainly enough evidence to infer this reasonable conclusion. But I, it may not prove anything to you. And every mm. juror, that level of proof is something different based on their histories, personal histories, likes, dislikes, preferences, all of these things, how they're just innately wired. These are the things that go into decision making that I can't control. And that honestly, um, uh, well, something that can prove it. Why do you get hung juries? Why do you get one or two people who say, I don't, I don't think it, it proves anything to me? Well, because that's, that's just proof is, a, is an elusive kind of, it's like trying to nail jello to the wall sometimes. So it's but a I subjective can, element. To I can, yeah, there is. And I can say though there is uh, evidence sufficient evidence, I think, to, to reasonably infer something, but okay. it may not prove anything to you. So what I typically say is this, if you can think of another, if you can think of a fictional character in history who has had this kind of impact on art, literature, music, education, science, um, and religion, tell me who that is. It's not, you're not going to find a Luke Skywalker or Peter Pan. There's just nobody yeah. who not only has existed, Jesus is the most written about figure in history. Library of, uh, of Congress or go on Google Books. No one has been written about more than Jesus of Nazareth. He's been painted. His entire story can be reconstructed from paintings. His entire story can be reconstructed from music just in the first three centuries of the common era. His entire story, I'm taught. Tell me who else that could be. If you've got another, you got a fictional character out there who lived in the first century, who this could be said about, tell me who that is. Forget about the first century, any century. So if you cannot find a fictional character who's had this kind of impact on what most atheists think of as the most important aspects of culture, it's reasonable, I think, to infer that Jesus is something other than a fictional character. Because if about, he's just a fictional character, you should see more of this. But What, what about I, Buddha, Muhammad? I mean, they were Take very Buddha and Muhammad. Well. Give you a ex yeah. simple example. Uh, how has Buddha... Remember, Buddha has a head start on Jesus. Mm-hmm. Hinduism has a head start. Zoroaster has a head start on Jesus. Mm -hmm. These are worldviews that have a head start on Jesus. In art, by the way, Buddha's interesting in the arts. In the arts, for example, every time you depict Buddha, he's depicted the same way. Right. Buddha is ethnically, physically, always depicted the same way. You go around the world, though, and look at how Jesus is depicted. It all depends on where you are. Is he's that probably true about Buddha? Because they've, I've seen like mm -hmm. the fat Buddha and I've seen the, the, the skinny Indian Buddha. It seems like there's a little variation there. So it? if you're talking about the Buddha, okay, mm -hmm. that variation. And so I try to give some illustrations in the book from yeah. every continent and how he is seen in the continents. Same continents, illustrations of Jesus. He is absolutely ah. ethnically different. He is African-American in Africa. I mean, African. He's African in Africa. Yeah, he's, he's he's an Indian in India. He's Chinese in China. He is ethnically wherever you're. Be Why is that the case? Because he is seen as the savior of all of us. Wow. And and the story is uh, malleable in a way that the Buddha story is not. Look at Islam, for example. You'd have to return to the practices and customs of sixth century, um, you know, Arabic nations in order to live like Muhammad. 
Yet we are not required to return to first century, the first century Judah or Israel in order to live like Jesus. The, the Jesus um, call is malleable. It, it is transferable and it, is, it accommodates the culture in which you live. Uh, in a way that other worldviews simply do not. And so when the arts reflect Jesus, he appears. And because he's being drawn ethnically and regionally in a way that meets, he, the art style then becomes... So if you look at some of the art I showed in, in the book from like Africa about Jesus, you'd have a hard time even telling that somebody that's Jesus because it's so stylistically... Uh, almost like a woodcut, beautiful, um, that it doesn't, you can't even really, he's adapting. The imagery is, is inspiring, yet not requiring a particular depiction. Make sense? Really cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference, I think, between the Jesus. That's why I think Jesus has this type of transferable inspiration to, and, and has inspired so many different nations. But if you look at him and every gener, and I have an uh, illustration in the book, it's actually a lot easier to see, I think, in my stage presentations. If you look at that palette, the difference in how he's depicted, even just in paintings, you'll see it's very dramatic. You'll, he's, he's obviously feels much more Catholic in South mm-hmm. America than he does if he's painted in, um, in, in India or in China. Okay. Okay. So, so, so I brought up the, the variation between Buddhas, like you see like the skinny Indian Buddha, the fat, right. like Chinese Buddha. You're saying that the, even, even with that variation, there's nowhere near, there's not, you're not um, adapting Buddha and making him look American, African, Asian. That's right. Well, look what happens when look look what happens when when Americans do movies of Jesus. Doesn't he always look like a white guy? Yeah, <laughs> doesn't he right. always? Early, and, and especially, especially the early yeah, ones. I'm talking crazy. about the ones that are like at the beginning of the of the movie industry, right? Where yeah. Jesus mm-hmm. is not even really seen all that Middle Eastern, right? And how many times have you heard people complain? Oh, there's a blue-eyed Jesus with blonde hair. I hear this complaint all the time online, yeah, right? Sure. Like we have somehow co-opted Jesus. Wasn't well, that interesting? It turns out that every people group is able to co-opt Jesus. You don't see Buddha changing like that. You don't. He stays yeah. the same ethnicity regardless of where he is. This is one of the fascinating things about this book, Jim, is you take these arguments that are that are, that are like seen as detriments to Christianity, and you're like, oh, actually, that's... That's actually a strength of Christianity. So the white, blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus, which we know that Jesus didn't look like that. Right, but right. the very fact that you've got white, blue-eyed people adapting Jesus, just like I went to a church on the south side of Chicago, and there's right on the wall, great big mural, black Jesus with his arms out embracing the, the people right. as they're coming to him. Well, and I was watching like, a video on Right Now Media last night from the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus is depicted in this as kind of a um, kind of cool um, Hispanic, um, this is like, like a contemporary. Again, why? Because I'm sure the people who are making it, he's reflecting their tastes, their right. their ethnicity, their right. uh, cultural perspective. I love that. I love that. That's yeah. what happens over and over and over again with Jesus. Is that he cool. ends up appearing? I've seen him clean shaven. Mm-hmm. I've seen him with beards. I've seen him in every possible hair color. I've seen him represented in representational art in such abstract forms that you can't even tell if it's a person. Mm. I've, this is what happens with Jesus because he's he he inspires in the same level of diversity in which he is depicted across the world as Savior. And I just think that's something yeah. that is 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 powerful in why 
um, he continues to, to, to dominate um, inspiration in the arts. And the, the temptation, I think, is, Joel, to say, well, you're, you're just talking as a Westerner about your experience in Western art. No, what we're talking about right here is we're talking mm-hmm. about how trans-internationally, how he has been able to be modified by different cultures. And this is why I'm not concerned that that it's, it's not that um, uh, Islam spreads typically because Muslims move around the country, around the world, rather. And once mm-hmm. they move to other nations, they they are having large families. That that is not through proselyt is not through proselytizing the the, the Muslim gospel, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. It's because Muslims move, and then they bring their culture with them, and then they grow that community within the community. We see this happening in America. We see this happening in the UK, and so you'll see that Muslim. Now, this is not true for Christian Christianity. is is a a truth claim about God, that even if just one missionary moves into that country. He doesn't have to have a thousand kids to get a thousand Christians. He doesn't right. have to import a thousand Christians with two thousand kids in order to have three thousand Christians. Instead, the idea of Christianity is what creates new Christians and mm. the culture in which they are living. They don't what they're going to abandon is their their sense of sin and self, not their sense of well, I'm going to, have to eat differently. I'm going to have to dress differently. I'm going to have to. Well, you meant to dress differently in terms of modesty, but I'm not going to yeah. wear a certain kinds of clothes. We're not out uh, um, um, establishing more Mennonite or or Amish communities. Right. It, instead, what we're saying is the truth about God can be known right where you are. Hmm. And this is why it, I don't have fears about Christianity going forward, because it doesn't require um, masses of Christians to convert people groups. Mm. When people see who God is, they voluntarily come to Jesus. And that's why I think, okay, this is something that we, we I, I'm not as concerned as I would be if I thought, well, and this is why this idea that somehow Christianity has spread by way of the sword. <laughs> you know, you get, I mean, you can spread any identity by way of the sword. Sure. Because if you're afraid of dying, you'll say you're anything. Mm-hmm. But, it, but the worldview embraced voluntarily the savior of the universe I mean, the, the sword is the least effective tool you're going to have because you've Absolutely. never developed true faith with a sword. You've so, got to carrot this. There's a truth claim over here. Here's the truth about God. Of course, God's doing all this, but you get my point, yeah, is yeah. that it's not made by way of, of coercion. Right. Yes, coercion is the worst possible way to spread the, the truth of an idea and to get people to believe, to truly believe in it. Well, faith by definition cannot be coerced. That's right. Yeah, that, that wouldn't be faith. That wouldn't be okay. faith. Now let's look at the fallout Jesus produced in the realm of education, something that is very near and dear to my heart. Remember that the the modern university, as you and I now, don't forget, ancients had methods by which they educated themselves. And there was Mm -hmm. ancient ways of educating yourself, both within uh, Egypt, within Greece, within, you know, within uh, other world, uh, other worldviews. But the modern university, the one that you're thinking of, that I'm thinking of, where it's a campus where people come to buildings and sit down with a resident group of instructors who, over a course of years, graduate you up and eventually award you a diploma for uh, successfully completing completing a curriculum, that comes out of three modern universities in antiquity at Bologna, Paris, and Oxford. Those uh, were born slowly out of the monastery and cathedral school movement, and they are Christians. They are Christ, uh, founded by Christ followers. And from those three schools at Bologna, Paris, and Oxford are born the 24 or so daughter universities from which the people who are listed as the science fathers in the scientific revolution, they attended those universities. 
okay, so Jesus left his impact on education, but what about other religious leaders? What about other religions? What about Buddhism, for example? Um, do you think that, that, that Buddhists, inspired by something that Buddha taught, ended up becoming teachers and forming the modern universities? No, they didn't, even though they had a head start. And if you take every Buddhist uh, university and you put them all together, along with the Hindus and the Jewish uh, universities, and every other, in every atheist or secular university, put them all together, multiply by 10, you still have not approached the number of modern universities founded by Christians. Wow. So yes, did Buddha have an impact? Of course. Did he have a huge impact? Of course. Did he have an impact like Jesus? Uh, no. Hmm. Not even close. So just from having the, the, the kind of initiative drive, and why does that happen? Well, that happens because Jesus does not say, go out and make converts in the Great Commission. He says, go out and make disciples, teaching them all that I have taught you. Right. He initiates in one sentence a worldview grounded in education. And that's why one of the earliest books in the Christian tradition outside the Gospels is a book called the Didache, or the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles to the Nations. And it is a, a catechism book. It's a book that really gets you know, Christians, it, it teaches them, it does what it's trying to do, what it is Jesus asked us to do in preparing young converts to live the Christian life. And so this is the problem, right? If you're saying, I, I, you're going to have to start teaching people what I, well, look, I, I'm going to, look, I, I got to, I'm going to write this down. What if they can't read? Well, mm. then you're going to teach them to read. Well, yeah. okay, what if they don't have like an alphabet? or any technology to write anything on. Well, then you have to kind of provide them an alphabet and give them the technology needed to put it that. So now this starts a movement Can in you education. An of that? Well, like the Cyrillic language, for example, right? When saints, you know, you got, you got saints who go, um, the saints, I mean, I don't mean like, like Catholic saints, I mean, believers who yeah. are uh, trying to evangelize people groups and teach them everything that Jesus, you know, they get there and no one's got any language or it doesn't have the written language so they can create scripture for them. So now you end up creating language that is still used by millions of people globally who didn't have written language before. They haven't, they constructed an alphabet for them and that alphabet was used. What? Well, it was used to create Bibles. And then that right. story, and this is still, by the way, happening all over the world with translation ministries that are reaching people groups that have yeah. verbal language, but they don't have a written language. So they're teaching them how to write, how to, they're providing them with the alphabet system in order to do this, a system that's, that is uh, close enough to their spoken language. And, and then they, they are going to, the, the whole goal of which is at some point, I'm going to use all of this infrastructure I've created to teach you what Jesus had to say. Hmm. And so that, that movement has been, has been, uh, again, this is why we are an education we are stuck as an educational worldview because Jesus provides a command that doesn't give us many alternatives. Now, this next part is really interesting. Jim is going to tell us about how Jesus inspired other religions to modify their teachings in light of who he is and the impact that he had. These are religions that actually predated Christianity. So really historically fascinating. Could you yeah. just give us a couple of examples on how some of these other religions were impacted by Jesus post Christian? Yeah. Uh, post, so you, uh, I think that Christian most era. of us would expect that all of the theistic worldviews that follow Jesus historically 
that appear after the first century, given how um, much uh, influence Jesus had, that I'm not surprised that things like uh, the Baha'i faith or Ahmadi Muslims or Ahmadi Muslims or anything that appears in history after and a lot of spinoffs come directly from Christianity, like Mormonism. So a lot of these things, of course, you're going to expect that Jesus will have a huge impact on those. But what's interesting is even the worldviews that preceded Jesus, once they enter into the common era, they start to shift and modify so that in the end, all world worldviews uh, that you can think of off the top of your head as the major world religions have either merged, modified, or mentioned Jesus in some way. So Buddhists, for example, uh, they position Jesus as a great teacher on his way to Buddhahood. This is true under Hinduism as well. This is true even on those uh, worldviews that no longer are with us, like uh, the worship of Attis or Heracles or Mithras. Mm -hmm. These deities start to be described differently in the common era than they were for thousands of years in the before the common era. And the reason why they're being changed is because they're reacting to the existence and they want their deities to either sound more like Jesus or they want their worship worshippers to act more like Jesus worshippers. Something that Jim is emphatic about, I think it's a great point, is that although Jesus impacted these other religions, they did not impact Jesus or Christianity. And this is true um, historically. You'll see that Jesus, um, although he could have mentioned Buddha, and he mm -hmm. could have mentioned all of those deities that existed before him in mythology, uh, doesn't. Uh, even though everyone will hat tip Jesus, Jesus never returns the favor. Yeah, And so what Jesus does is he says, no, it's, uh, I'm the only way to the Father, folks. I mean, those things don't work. Those things are not going to be included. So as much as they might love me, I cannot uh, uh, commend them to you because I'm the only way to the Father. Now, Amen. this is where I think it's interesting. I, I, I Maybe I watch the news too much, and maybe a lot of people are watching the news too much right now. And if you are, you probably would say, if you're honest, that it's troubling. I'm troubled. I know this, uh, no one was more troubled than Jesus' followers on the eve of the cross when they finally realized that he's about to leave us. The, the guy who we've put our whole life in for the three years, who we are so utterly dependent on, is now about to do what he's been talking about. He's going to leave. Jesus seeing this, what does he say? He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. If that weren't true, I would have told you. Yeah. For I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go there to prepare a place for you, I'm coming again. And I will take you to myself so that where I am, there you also will be. For you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Right. And he said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, now, what's interesting about that whole passage is that scholars are have examined the Greek in this for you know two thousand years. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting, it seems that Jesus is talking about two things there. He's talking about the goal, heaven, mm -hmm. and the way to get to the goal, the goal and the way to get there. Yet, here's what he says. He says, and you know the way where I am going. That sentence shouldn't be structured that way. It should be, and you know the way to get where I am going, right? Mm. There's the goal, where I'm going, and there's the way for you to get there. But he does he conflates those two. Hmm. In other words, he's demonstrating in that entire passage that the, the promise of God in eternity is not a heaven where you can go, but the offer of God in the next life is Jesus of Nazareth 
He is, this is why he says, you know the way where I am. The way is the where. Mm. The goal is also the way to achieve the goal. This is why when someone says, well, it doesn't seem, make sense to me that God would would um, offer heaven and then be so exclusive about it, or that if right. I was a good person, I wouldn't be in, in, that, in that house, right? With many rooms, I'd have a room, right? Well, no, mm. no, look, look, this is, the goal is Jesus. If, if that's not your goal today, if that's not what you love today, <laughs> He, you, you won't be united to that in eternity. You wouldn't want to be. So it turns right. out the goal has never been a place called heaven. The goal has always been Jesus. And the way to get to Jesus is Jesus. So when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one gets there except through me, he's telling you that's why Buddhism doesn't work. Hmm. If you're in love with, the, no, I'm the goal. If, if you don't want to acknowledge me here, you won't want to acknowledge me there. I'm the whole reason why you're here to begin with. Remember? The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created on heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him, all things hold together. What is that? He's telling you. I'm, I've been I've been the reason why you're here all along, and I'll be the reason why you can. So don't be troubled, because that's not going to change. And whatever you're seeing here, it's not going to change. I've been the way and the goal. If I'm the way and the goal for you right now, nothing will change. Amen. And so I think part of it is is that for for all of us is Jesus. And this is what I'm trying to do in my in my at my age now. Because I'm just struggling with, hey, you know what? I, I, I want for me personally. You can get distracted where the thing it is that your goal is, is your next book or the next video you're going to do or the next pot. None of that matters. Hmm. What matters is Jesus. And so all of us need to kind of spend some time focused on what it is we really love and who it is we really love. So in light of all this, how can you take all this knowledge and distill it down and use it to help you share your faith and train up the younger generation. Okay, so for the Christian layman who is really active, let's say in church, trying to disciple his kids, and he's reading this book and he's like, man, this is, this is good stuff. There's so much information here. What's a good practical next step for our listener who wants to start to put these things into practice? Uh, it's a priority issue. That's really all it is, because because mm. I think people will say, well, what's the next step? Like this, this seems overwhelming. You got a lot of information. I get that, I get that. I'm just a regular dude like everybody else, mm. and so I'm collecting this information because you know I'm also a huge sports fan, especially when it comes to football. So let's say for example, I'm in Los Angeles. We just won the Super Bowl, right? The Rams did. I'm actually a big Charger fan though too. So let's just say I said, okay, well the question is, should we keep Odell Beckham Jr. And I might offer like three reasons why we should keep this great wide receiver who came in and had a huge impact, not only in the Super Bowl, but in the entire end of the season. So I thought, you know, I can make a case for this. And I can maybe, because I know my head's already cluttered. I can tell you some of the receptions he made in the playoffs. I can tell you some of the plays that were, they used him as a decoy, which helped us free up Cooper Cup. Right. I could, in other words, I, I know enough detail. Why do I know all that detail? It's completely wasted, useless information. How is that? What what <laughs> eternal value does any of that detail have? None. Right. But I have chosen to uh, assemble a case for why we should or shouldn't take this player or keep that player. I'm just I'm, look. You're, there's already something that you're geeked out about that you are cluttering your headspace with, mm. and and you're thinking, well, how do I do this? Well, how about just exchanging? 
some of the passion you have for things that don't have any eternal value mm. and placing them in the things that do. Like I always tell people, sadly, I think we do a better job of preparing our kids to be the fan of our sports team hmm. than we do in preparing our kids to be the follower of our Lord. Now, that's just the truth of it because we have those conversations at dinner. They're fun. We make time, make events about going to the games. It's far bigger event to go to a game right now probably than it is to go to church. Am I right? So hmm. the question just becomes, how do we exchange those passions for these passions? And then all that time is going to be available to you because... I mean, whatever time you were spending on Netflix, you're now spending discovering something new in Scripture. When I discovered that, you know, um, it wasn't that long ago when I was reading through that, and I thought, this is an awkwardly, you know, you know the way where I am going. It doesn't make it, hmm. it's like this is poorly written, right? Or maybe we got a, a manuscript issue. Maybe it's a Greek issue. I wanted to know. Well, then I find out that, yeah, we've been talking about this for years, and it, this really, to me, demonstrates what I just described. Wow. Well, how do you discover those kinds of things? Because I happen to be in John 14. You know, I happen to be reading through that scripture and going, oh, yeah, this doesn't, and, and, and wanting to, to keep digging into that issue the same yeah. way you might want to dig into, well, what is Odell Beckham Jr.'s contract for next year? Can we afford hmm. him? <laughs> right. Like I can see myself looking on websites, trying to figure out totally. if we can afford him. Okay. But give me a break. <laughs> okay. If you're willing to do that, well, then you're willing to take your logos Bible software on your phone, which is what I'm doing. Start with mm -hmm. and start to dig through there. Oh, now I can chase that rabbit. And I keep on chasing rabbits until I come to a conclusion. That's awesome. And that's what we're trying to do here is just to kind of reprioritize. Okay. Okay. Um, so where can people get your book? Oh, uh, a book is at, uh, and you know how I feel about marketing books. Okay? So you got to sell it. Sell it. It's sell the me worst on this book. part of all of this. Okay. <laughs> I tell people all the time that anyone can write a book, getting people to read it. That's the hard work. Okay. Right, this right, book right. Is, is available at personofinterestbook.com. So what we try to do is I want you not just to read it. I want you to teach it to others. Yeah. So we've got videos, uh, Bible inserts and a 525, uh, slide PowerPoint, ready to go, all animated uh, at personofinterestbook.com that I have already seen pastors using in church. So I'm just grateful that people are starting to use the material. Very cool. Um, anything else that you'd want the listener to do? Go to your website? No, but if you're not subscribed here to Joel's podcast and to Joel's work, don't be stupid. I mean, I, this is you're one of the uh, most thoughtful guys are right now online, and and you're very even, Joel. I mean, the way you're the way you're presenting the material is just um, it's winsome. So oh, keep it up, and if you're not if you're watching us on Joel's platform, make sure that you subscribe. Thanks, Jim. Really appreciate that, and uh, I'll talk to you later. Okay, man. Talk to you soon. So now you know. Direct evidence is eyewitness testimony and indirect evidence is everything else. All this evidence from the fuse and the fallout from history. And this is very powerful in establishing the case of who Jesus is, even without appealing to the New Testament. We stand on the truth of the New Testament and we establish that truth, even using the impact from the coming of Jesus. Very, very cool. We talked about why it was better for Jesus to come in the first century than in the internet age. Surprisingly, even with all of our technology, there's more opportunity for messages to get corrupted today. There's more centralization of messages today, and there's less trust due to the proliferation of fake news. You also heard about the amazing impact that Jesus had on the development of science. Science arose in Christendom for a good reason. It's because of the worldview that Jesus taught. And similarly, Jesus has had a massive impact on architecture and art, the things that fill our world with beauty that make it more just grand. 
and majestic. Even the K-12 education that we get and the great universities of the world all owe their existence to Jesus of Nazareth. And you also heard Jim talk about how Jesus inspired other religions to modify their teachings, even religions that came before Christianity. And yet, Jesus never modified his teaching to accommodate those other religions, although he could have. So, now you can use all this knowledge in order to share and defend your faith and to teach the younger generation to know God by making Jesus your top priority, by redirecting some of that intensity that you invest in other areas of your life. Jim mentioned sports, but you know whatever that is for yourself. And transferring that energy to your study of the Lord and the Christian worldview. I want to encourage you to purchase Jim's new book, Person of Interest, and you can get that at personofinterestbook.com. Now, let me tell you about the brand new official Worldview Legacy Premium subscription plan. I've come up with what I hope will be a creative way and a helpful way for you to partner with us while also providing access to some entertaining, encouraging, and educational things along the way. So I wanted to make sure that this subscription plan was overloaded with content and resources to help you become the worldview leader that your church and your family need. So that's why it includes all these essential features. We've got complete unedited audio of my conversations with guests, complete unedited video of my conversations with guests, monthly apologetics coaching, AMA calls, Those will be recorded, and you'll have access to those as well. Uh, You'll also get monthly discussion guide PDFs. These are going to be the same ones that I use to facilitate our AWOL men's discussion groups here in the Fox Valley of Illinois. And, hey, you'll get some shout-outs and mentions on the podcast as well. We are in a trial run of the subscription right now. You can consider it kind of a soft launch. I really want to see how much interest there is for this. We do have some people that are already signing up. And if this sounds good to you, you can learn more or subscribe by going to worldviewlegacy.supercast.com. You can also find the link in the show notes as well. So thanks for listening to Worldview Legacy. Huge thanks to my guest, Jay Warner Wallace. This episode was produced by yours truly, Joel Sedeckes, and is a production of the Think Institute.